This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. William Shatner has set his phasers onto a local developer who wanted to build a condo or is building a condo at the old CHCHTV site. Apparently, the developer uh, had used uh, William Shatner's likeness to promote the condo project, a lot, along with Jay Leno and Mr. T. And I wonder what the Mr. T suite looks like. Uh, anyway, uh, so clearly the condo is going to have a very tacky 80s design to it. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Uh, but here's one person who is really upset about it all. Shh. Quiet. He's peering out. Space. The final frontier. Through his condo. Penthouse. It's so high a shooting star just went by. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Into that two-bedroom condo. 1,375 square feet of luxury. Who wouldn't want to go? Very small closets, though. Very small closets because they only really have one uniform in them. Don't need anything else. Ah. All right. Obviously, uh, you know, a great little idea, a little promotion idea. Television City, I guess. In this, you know, I, let's be honest. This is getting more publicity now than it ever would have if nobody, if William had never have said, hey, stop using my name. But with it being on the site of the uh, old TV station, then, um, you know, they've decided to put a sort of TV theme to it all. And the suites were named after various uh, TV stars. Um, there you go. Uh, Mr. T., uh, William Shatner, Lee Majors, <laughs> they're all all stars from the past. Uh, anyway, so uh, this was the idea behind the promotion. And then uh, William Shatner got a hold of it and said, hey, hey, whoa, 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 I didn't give you permission to do any of this. So what's the deal? You got to uh, cease and desist right now. And uh, otherwise, well, I, I don't know what would happen if they didn't. I guess they would get sued. Uh, but to, uh, to talk about all of this, uh, Susan Abramovich is with us, head entertainment law, Gowling WLG, and is with us now. Susan, thanks for taking the time to join us. No problem. Hi, Scott. Are you surprised that William Shatner is, uh, has uh, sent a note in regard to this? Uh, actually not. In fact, all I'm surprised about is that all he's done apparently is send a, a tweet as opposed to sending a cease and desist letter from his lawyers. Uh, do you think he did this uh, first, hoping to avoid all of that? Perhaps. I think he's drawing attention to the situation. I don't know what, if he's going to pursue it or not, but using his name, and they've also used his likeness, apparently, on pamphlets and posters, is a big no-no. So uh, does it matter if they're using the image and uh, the name, or both combined? Does anyone have any more weight than the other? Uh, no, not necessarily. All aspects of personality, whether it's your voice or your name or your image, if they're used to sell an, a product without consent, that's, that's a problem. When would this apply to anybody other than just big stars? That's a very good question. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, there may be different consequences based on the value of somebody's personality. But everybody has a shot at uh, making that kind of claim, yeah. So if uh, they called it, well, if they called it after you or me, we could still go and say, hey, we don't like that, take it down. Although, would we have to prove that we're the, the Susan and the Scott that they meant? Uh, right. Well, y- y- exactly. Um, they would have to, we'd have to be able to show that they were using our personality in order to sell their wares. And then maybe if we could even make that out. The question of damages might be different if the court would evaluate it based on the, you know, the value of how much uh, we could command if they had actually come to us and asked for permission. Are you surprised that this got William Shatner's attention? Or in today's world, is it pretty much impossible to hide this sort of thing? Uh, no, I'm not surprised. I mean, he is Canadian. He probably is tuned into all things Canadian. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when his name is used, William Shatner has spent 83 years building up the value of his personality. He certainly uh, exploits it. For example, he did the whole Priceline campaign. And so for somebody to have spent the time to, to build up his image and create its value and to watch somebody take that value and not pay for it, I, that would bother me too. So because uh, over and above being an actor, he has endorsed other products and, and done things like this uh, in the same, uh, same sort of uh, ilk with his brand, does that heighten this even more? Does that make it even more, uh, people more, even more sensitive to this sort of thing? 
Yeah, I think it does. Uh, certainly, it would also be important if he had actually done the opposite and remained very private, because uh, then that might have also been, an, you know, a violation of his his privacy. Um, and, and but the fact that he actually has built up his brand and commands a high price for it, I imagine, uh, would factor into. Um, any damages award that ultimately was awarded. Now, because this, I, I don't know, but it appears that this whole thing has gotten more publicity since this all happened. Uh, if he hadn't said anything, maybe only those interested in actually buying a condo would have noticed. Uh, the fact that um, uh, it has now created this this sort of buzz around the place, does that how does that factor into a case if William Shatner was to bring one forward uh, simply because even taking it down has created a lot of uh, a lot of interest? Well, the interest can only help uh, you know prop up the argument that there was value to his name being associated with these condos, and so yes, it brings attention to it, but that might actually, you know, help inflate any kind of damages award ultimately awarded. Uh, surprised a developer did this without seeking advice or permission, or do you think he did and it's just easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission? Uh, that, it, it is very strange that, that a company like this would not have done it. I've read in reports that they've said that they just never thought, you know, thought of running this by a lawyer which is very surprising to me. Um, so I think they just, you know, were oblivious to the fact that there are rights in name and likeness. Uh, do you think maybe they knew all along and thought, uh, you know what, even if we get a couple of weeks' publicity out of this, it'll be better than nothing? You know, that's always a possibility. I always think the best of people uh, in terms of their legal actions, but maybe that was the approach. So uh, they have taken this, th- these images and, uh, and names down. Uh, does that mean this is all over, or could he still pursue uh, damages? Uh, he could, but the fact that it's come down certainly minimizes the, the claim that he could make and the damages award. Uh, perhaps Brad Lamb is going to actually do it the right way and approach these people and see if he can buy the right to use their name and likeness. Uh, what about the other stars that were named in this uh, brochure? Uh, do they have same, obviously the same potential uh, lawsuit uh, as William Shatner would? They would, of course. Um, I haven't seen all the names, but there is a question under Ontario law whether this right uh, survives death. So if any of the um, actors or celebrities that are, uh, have rooms named or suites named after them are no longer alive, that may impact the, their ability to bring a claim. So uh, on these on this list, Johnny Carson, Miss, uh, Mr. Rogers. I don't know if Mr. Rogers is still with us or not, but Johnny Carson obviously still isn't. Uh, uh, Lucille Ball, another one. Would their estates have any claim to these? They may, but it's unclear under Ontario law. I mean, th- the law of personality is actually determined state by state and province by province. In this case, it seems as though it's confined to Ontario. And then under Ontario law, it's not 100% clear whether the right survives death. So, uh, if you were an attorney representing uh, Mr. Shatner, what would you advise him to do? I would have perhaps advised him to send a cease and desist before um, even tweeting about it. Um, but at this point, I would send a letter. I would, I'd ask my client whether he was interested in endorsing this uh, project anymore. And if so, uh, approach them and say, sure, we're happy to have you continue doing it on these terms. If he's not, then send the cease and desist and, and just say, you know, it's over. We, we really uh, don't want you to use our name. And with a cease and desist order, does that mean that uh, if they do what you ask them to do, that, y- that they are no longer liable? Uh, there may be some claim that, that Mr. Shatner can make to, um, you know, the use until now, until it was taken down, help sale, sell the product, and that there was a value to that that should be paid. So there may, may still be a claim, but it would be uh, minimized by the fact that it was taken down. Uh, the fact that he did send a tweet out, um, and well, a couple of tweets out regarding all of this, rather than uh, approaching his lawyer first, because I'm sure, obviously, he's been through this before, and he knows certainly that, you know, it's not his first rodeo, he knows the rules of engagement here. Uh, does that lessen this in any way? I don't think so. It just signals to me that he may not be serious about pursuing this legally. Right. Uh, but I don't think it would impact the claim that he could ultimately make if he does pursue it. What about the fact that that tweet has drawn more attention to it? It's very interesting. And maybe this is just about Mr. Shatner, you know, wanting to educate people about name and likeness, which frankly, I'm happy he did. And perhaps 
it has a broader audience by way of a tweet than by way of a private cease and desist letter. So what do the laws in Ontario actually say on issues like this? Is it clear? Is it very vague? It's not clear. In fact, the law of misappropriation of personality, which is what we're talking about here, is actually has been created or, or defined by case law as opposed to any kind of statute. Um, and so you have to sort of piece together the cases to come up with what the law is. And of course, cases are based on their own facts. So uh, what I would say as a rule of thumb in Ontario is if you use somebody's name or likeness or other aspect of their personality as the subject of a work, in other words, an unauthorized biography, for, for example, you're probably okay. But if you put it in a poster and in an ad or in any way to sell another product, you're probably uh, not going to be okay. It's one thing to put names of, of condo suites on a price list, which, you know, people may come into a sales office and pick up. It's another one to do such a detailed caricature of somebody. The fact that they went to that extent, uh, obviously intent, they knew exactly what they were doing, uh, whether they got legal advice or not. How does that weigh into all of this? Um, I, if, I don't think it's so much about name versus picture. For me, it, the distinction is that the name of the suite, using his name as the name of the suite, potentially could be uh, construed as the subject of the work, like you know, an unauthorized biography, or he's just the subject of that room, as opposed to using his uh, caricature in, on pamphlets in order to sell the, the condo units. So it's about that, that sales versus subject dichotomy. So if uh, if there's just a name on the suite saying William Shatner, as opposed to you go in and it's a William Shatner-inspired design, whether, I don't know, it's a Star Trek theme or something around the star's life, is that completely different? Uh, it's not. I think there are degrees on a continuum. The, the fact that they picked his name as the name of a, a suite that they're trying to sell, I think there's definitely an argument to say that they were using his name in order to sell it. Uh, but it would it, it's uh, less slam dunk than putting his name or, or picture on a brochure that they hand out to potential buyers. What about the thought that, you know, someone's not going to buy or, or sell a condo suite just because there's a name on it? Uh, obviously, it's a marketing tool, uh, but I don't think anybody's going to buy, you know, the William Shatner suite just because it's the William Shatner suite, although maybe I'm wrong. Does that play into this at all? It might. I, you know, who knows what the motivations of buyers are. Um, but certainly putting his name there, you know, perhaps could be construed as an implied endorsement, you know, might lend credibility to the, to the project. Um, and that's a problem. We certainly hear lots of examples of, I think there was one in regard to uh, uh, Moosehead Breweries, uh, pubs that had the word moose in it. Um, what advice do you have for businesses who are starting out or trying to sell something or whatever and, and are, are getting too close to this line? What advice do you have for them? My advice to them is if you're using somebody's personality because you think it's going to help sell your product, think twice and go get consent. How much would this cost? Does it? Uh, and how, how do you? Or what, the what, damages? What sort of? Uh, no, well, there's a good question. There's two good questions. Uh, what would it cost to get an endorsement like this? What do you value that on? I mean, obviously, it's different for every star. But what sort of formula would be used on uh, to to calculate that? And let's take the other question: If you wanted damages, how do you calculate that? Well, those are probably two similar uh, calculations. It's impossible to say. It really depends on. The, who the celebrity is, their prominence, how the use is being made here. It's, you know, just local in Hamilton, or it was until the tweet. Um, so that, that all plays into how much an endorsement might cost. But, you know, the fact that William Shatner has done endorsements, and I assume has been very handsomely paid for them, certainly would make this one an expensive one. Susan Abramovich has been with us, head uh, entertainment law, Gowling WLG. Uh, Susan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. One more question. Do you get a lot of this stuff? Actually, this comes up quite a bit, I have to say, and I, I enjoy the subject of personality rights. I probably get a question or a file that, that touches on this maybe uh, once a month. Wow. Susan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. U.S. Thanksgiving and, of course, uh, Black Friday tomorrow, the start of, uh, I guess, the U.S. shopping season. Uh, but Canadians, you know, they've been felt left. Uh, they have felt left out. And uh, during the recession around 2008, uh, this uh, whole idea started to pick up momentum in Canada. Then, of course, the comparisons between the two started. 
So maybe this is the best way to to show you how it is different in the United States than it is in Canada, vice versa. Here is uh, some audio of uh, last year's Black Friday um, in Canada. I understand this is at a Best Buy. And the applause that you're hearing is actually staff applauding and thank. It's over? That's it. They're all in? That's it? I thought the lineup went around the block. Uh, and that's actually sales associates, whatever you want to call them, staff, applauding as the people come through, uh, you know, like, why not form an archway like at a wedding? Throw a bouquet. Uh, so it's quite civilized. The same situation. Here's some audio from the U.S. Holy crap! Okay, you got the red. Apparently, that was uh, over towels. Um, but at least we didn't hear. It, we, didn't, we should have put some uh, rock'em sock'em uh, sound effects in the background. You know, just like a fisticuffs fight uh, to prove the point. But clearly, it's a different scenario in the United States than it is in Canada. Some have said it is due to the fact that the discounts are deeper in the United States. Here's what one shopper had to say as why they get involved in all of this. I do get deals for like friends and family and stuff like that. So it's about the deals for friends and family, but it's also about the, um, the fun that we have out here in the camaraderie. See, uh, and if you're willing to do shopping for your friends and family, my goodness, would you like my list and credit card? Uh, and this is, and I've said this to my wife, because uh, she'll always bark at me. You never do the shopping, to, you know, even grocery shopping. It's like, write a list. I'll be happy to do it. Oh, a list. Oh, my. I can't do a list. Because, uh, yeah, because you go up and down every single aisle and you shop. You don't really have a list. That way I can get in and out. That's why it takes you forever. And I've said to my wife, you know, you love doing this. That Like, ladies, and I guess some guys, I don't want to be too stereotypical about this, but they love this. They love going shopping. It's part of, it's, it's the ritual. It's the rodeo. Whereas I, you know, honestly, um, my wife went into Costco on the weekend. It's like, number one, Costco. Number two, the weekend. What are you, nuts? Honestly, I, I just, I, I can't handle it. I can't, and, and, you know, I started shopping online a couple of years ago. <laughs> my goodness, they couldn't be any more helpful. I absolutely loved it. So why people want to roll up their sleeves, put on their helmets and go in there is beyond me. But, you know, again, that's just the way that's just the way I am. But clearly there does seem to be some difference in Black Friday in the United States and Canada. How did we get sucked into all of this? Let's bring in Farla Efros, president, HRC Retail Advisory and on the line with us now. Farla, thanks for taking the time to join us. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, what is the HRC uh, Retail Advisory? Uh, we are a uh, retail consulting firm that does uh, turnaround for most retail companies uh, across North America. How do you explain the uh, recent increase in interest in Black Friday in Canada? I think it's just uh, another reason to stimulate demand. If you think what's been going on in Canada over the course of the last few years, traffic has been down significantly, malls and retailers are struggling, and this is another event to stimulate some demand and draw some traffic into the stores. So were uh, Ontario or Canadian retailers suffering from the amount of people that were heading down south this weekend to do shopping? Absolutely. I mean, the, the reality is is that Canada in general is, is and across all retail, is, is suffering. And anything they can do to st- stimulate some additional traffic into their malls, into their stores, um, they're going to they're gonna hone down and, and get done to and do that. Um, the reality is is that the, the question is, has Black Friday in general, you know, lo- lo- you know, lost its luster across the U.S.? And I think the answer to that is yes, because there's clearly no differentiation from you really leave back to school and then you move on into uh, almost, you know, you move into Halloween and then you move into Black Friday, which just continues ongoing until after the holiday. 
so uh, it has lost its lust, uh, luster just simply because the whole thing is saturated? A hundred percent, and it just never ends. Um, it used to be a real event. Uh, I was listening to, obviously, the uh, the yelling and the screaming of the, of the folks, and it used to be an event where people would line up and, you know, sit outside the Best Buys forever in tents, um, and it created an unbelievable demand. And today, if you think about it, Black Friday actually started probably about a week or two ago, and it'll continue, and you'll see that the, the sales list that you'll see will be in excess of Cyber Monday versus actual Black Friday. Now, at the end of the day, and, and it's pretty tough to compare year to year because things just change so much, but mm-hmm. at the end of yeah. the day, is the old Black Friday model better where they just, you know, until the actual day, there was nothing going on, and then when it was, it was dip, deep discounts. Are they moving more product that way, or are they move, moving more product by spreading this out over another week or so? They move more product in the, the old way. The new way, what they're doing is they're almost stimulating the demand that they're moving the product, but a lot of them are actually just getting rid of excess inventory and old inventory and getting special makeups. And in Canada specifically, um, I think Black Friday is going to have a, a negative impact on sales because if you think of the weather that has recently just turned over the course of the last two to three weeks, uh, this would be a real opportunity for retailers to get full price sales and now they're going to be getting them at a discounted value. So why do it? Why not, you know, it seems whenever we find something great, everybody just milks the heck out of it till it's dead. <laughs> why, 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 do, why, don't, why don't retailers just back off and say, you know what, I'm going to wait and do it this way? It's the fear. They look at their Q3 sales, they look at what's going, they look at the opportunities that are sitting out there, and they get really worried, and it's a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, we, I remember hearing an advertisement or an article on uh, Target down in the States that they said, you know what, we're not jumping the gun. We're not doing anything yep. Christmas until uh, after Halloween is over and so on and so forth. Um, uh, how, does that, how did that work for them? And, you know, I, I remember talking to a business professor when all of that was going down, and I'm thinking, you could make a total event out of this by saying, we're not going there until this certain 100%. day. And then when this day hits, boom, it's like New Year's Eve. Exactly. And, and that, because they're, they're taking a stand, and so that actually impacts them a lot better. When I was uh, the chief merchant in Florida at Office Depot, there was one year where we decided we were not going to play in Black Friday. Yeah. It was just going to be a, let's get rid of all the excess inventory that we have, because the reality is people aren't running to buy Office products on Black Friday. And mm. that's the, the other piece of it, right? Let's talk about what is the evolution of Black Friday, what are the door busters? It's really all around technology and toys. Uh, getting back to Target, did they lose out with this approach? Does, does they, or does nope. this make them stand out? It makes them stand out, and it makes them go back to kind of the, the, the basis of what they are and to build that, that customer loyalty. Will others follow this? Meaning other, realita- other retailers? Yeah, it, at the end of the day, it goes down to one thing. You look at your balance sheet and you see what you have left. And that's where you determine how your what your strategy is going to be. So, when you're determining uh, sales for your Black Friday, what is it about? Is it about just getting as many people in and discounting everything, or is it about getting rid of the stuff you have excess of? It's a combination of both, and it really depends. It's retailer by retailer. So, for a lot of them, people are getting special makeup products, so just dropping product in that's new that they don't have just to get it out the door. And the hope is that not that they necessarily buy that product, but it's they buy everything else. Right. So it's all about growing that basket because, again, trips are down, and the reality is we don't see trips moving up and moving up over time. Uh, so compare Black Friday in Canada to the United States. How is it different from one to the other? Well, number one, in Canada... We work on Black Friday. Yeah, good point. <laughs> so that that immediately cuts the, the traffic in half, I'm guessing. That's exactly it. And I think that the fundamental difference is that Black Friday is probably having a cannibalizing effect of what we would do a day after Christmas on Boxing Day. That was and my... And I think we're... Yeah, 100%. And, and I, I think we're giving away sales that we would have got otherwise, given the weather outside. That's my next question, because uh, I understand in the United States they don't have Boxing Day, therefore no Boxing no. Day sales. Uh, so how much does this take away from that day? And, and, and was Black Friday the equivalent of, or was Boxing Day the equivalent of our Black Friday? The answer is yes, it was. Because um, that was, and if you remember, everyone would wait and wait and wait and wait and then go into the mall and it would be when they open the doors it would be crowds would be pounding the pavement today you don't see that at all 
on, on Boxing Day. Again, it starts with Black Friday, and it just continues on until after the New Year. So what is the advantage to um, uh, having these sales uh, prior to the actual day? I mean, at the end of the day, a watered-down version, will we see a wave of change here in the next couple of years? Over time, I think as things start to settle down, I would refer retail right now is very up and down. It's somewhat of what I would refer to as the new normal. And as there's that fear of the unknown, and so it's all about let's let's stimulate that demand early on so we can capture that sale because the risk is we're going to lose it to an online player. Uh, oh, we'll come to that in a second. Uh, advantage <laughs> of having the sale before the holiday as opposed to after. I mean, there's the big difference, too, between the two. One is after the holiday, one's before. Uh, these people are doing something yeah. to put under a tree. The others don't care. How does, that, yeah. what, how does that play out in all of this? I call it a disadvantage because you're, you're getting, people are actually buying product on sale versus buying at a regular price. Right. So at the end of the day, Boxing Day works better than Black Friday then. Hundred percent for the retailer. For the retailer. Now, what for about consumer, for the right now? The consumer's winning across the board. They've been winning for the last few years. So because at, everything is on sale. So at the end of the day, this is better for the consumer. Hundred uh, percent. That being said, does it lose value because it is spread out so long? Uh, do yeah. They're gonna they're gonna it, spend the money no matter what. They're going to spend the money. It loses its luster. They know it's coming, so they wait. So why buy anything at regular price? I might as well just hold off a week or two because I know it's going to be discounted. All right. Talk about online sales. Uh, Cyber Monday. Is it surpassing yeah. Black Friday? 100%. How, how convenient to be able to sit in your bed and order product. And is... Uh, the growth in uh, online shopping obviously fueling this. Will this eventually see the end of Black Friday? Uh, might be, unless we go back to kind of what Black Friday was about to really create that demand and really make it special. It's not special today. Everybody is playing in Black Friday, and even retailers today that shouldn't be playing in Black Friday are playing in it. So if you're a Canadian retailer uh, and you're pricing your product right now, how does that change from how you will price it on Boxing Day? The longer it stays on the shelf, does it go down a bit more, or do we see the yep. same deals on Boxing Day that we would on Black Friday? So the same deals on Black Friday that we would see, see on Boxing Day? I think by Boxing Day, they'll have a, a good feel of how much inventory they have left over, and so you'll probably see a deeper discount. Won't Black Friday always supersede uh, Boxing Day or Cyber Monday simply because there's more stock? Uh, the longer you wait, the less chance there is of getting what you want? Depends on the retailer, because some are just buying a certain amount of stock just for that particular day. Uh, are there types of stores that, that uh, do better on Black Friday, Cyber Mondays, and Boxing Day than others? Yes, I would say the it's really around technology. So obviously the best buys of the world and toys, those are the ones that tend to do better because it's really, it's, it's you know, getting that big screen TV and we only have five of them. So in those, they obviously yeah. stimulate that demand. Uh, I would think who, the retailer or the consumer, uh, which who, they both have five. Uh, what about, clo yeah. what about clothing? Um. So some retailers do okay in clothing. It's it's a bit of a it's, it's a bit of a mismatch to be honest. So you see Macy's obviously does well in clothing, but you won't necessarily see that in our Canadian retailers like you know the Bay or Holt Renfrew. They don't really play in those areas. So retailers are, are are losing out here simply because, like for example, you talked about the weather, winter coats. People probably not really interested in buying one uh, because we had such a a warm fall and such. Now the cold weather hits; they're not getting full value. They're not getting full markup for these. Instead, they're having to discount them. That's right. So if you're a consumer, what advice do you have for them? If I'm a consumer, I'm going to wait because watch as you as you sit and wait. There's a, a ton of excess inventory that's sitting in the retailers today, and just wait, because it's going to keep going lower and lower in price. How will it's a great? It's a great opportunity to be a consumer right now. Uh, after this season is over, how will retailers look at this year? Do you think in Canada? I think it's going to. I think it's been a tough year in Canada, and so I think that's why they're also playing in in the area of Black Friday and being highly promotional. I think once again, um, it's been a really tough retail year. Do retailers need a new strategy for this time of year? I think retailers need a new strategy, period. Uh, and I think in this time of year, they need to decide where they want to play and how they want to play in it, yes. 
So if you're a retailer, what sort of questions are you asking yourself at this point? Do I really need to be, you know, stimulating this excess demand? And do I really need to be discounting the product at this time of year? Or can I get more high-priced items sold? But if one is doing it, don't they all have to? Not really. Uh, Is Target the test for that? Um, Well, I think, you know, Target's always going to emulate what Walmart's doing. Right? You see that in the U.S. But I think Target is a great indicator of what can be done. How is Cyber Monday changing over the years? At one time, you know, I guess it's been around for 10 years. Is that... About 10 years, yeah. If I usually say 10 years about something, it means it's been around for 20. Um, (laughs) But but how has it evolved over time? How has it changed? I think it's just grown. I think it's completely grown. And I think it's also talking about the comfort level of the consumer of buying things online and and waiting and picking it up as, as quickly as they can. It's easy. It's convenient. They don't have to battle the the mall traffic. They don't have to have fights in the middle of Walmart over who's going to pick up the next Cabbage Patch doll. Why why don't Canadian retailers just have Boxing Day sales early? I mean, isn't that... Is is that not the same as Black Friday? Or are they, you know, riding on the coattails of of that promotion? I think they're riding on the coattails of the U.S. because it's such a well-known holiday. So why not build on that. Uh, do you think that takes, uh, do you think we'll see less shoppers in stores as a result of that this holiday season as far as Black Friday? The answer is yes, because I think people uh, will pick up all of their gifts early on, get them at a great deal, and then there's no need for them to necessarily go back unless they start to return things uh, after the holiday. So if you're a retailer and you're trying to plan next year, what do you do? <laughs> Um, I think it comes down to two things. I think it's really about having less inventory in play, putting more things online, and really deciding where what what is truly uh, critical to my success in, re- in regards to some promotions. And it's okay to not play in all of them. You know, Black Friday may eventually mean the lights are out. <laughs> it might be. Everybody's online. Uh, far, uh, yeah. Farla Efros has been with us, President HRC Retail Advisory, talking about uh, comparing uh, U.S. Black Friday to Canada's. Farla, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. According to government data that has been released, uh, Canada has only granted refugee status to about 10% of the Haitian border crossers this year. What does it mean for those that are still waiting and the next wave that are about to come in? To talk more about all of this, Giddy Mamam is with us, senior partner, founder of Maman, Sandaluk, and Kingwell LLP, and is on the uh, line with us now. Giddy, thanks for taking the time to join us. Appreciate this. Oh, it's my pleasure, Scott. So uh, how many uh, uh, Haitian asylum seekers have come into Canada so far? Uh, We've processed about 298. How many have come in? Do we know? Well, there's about 6,000 Haitians, from what I understand, in the queue. Uh, We have a lot more refugees than that. Um, But there's about 6,000 who've come in this year uh, through the the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, First question is, we've only processed 298. What are your thoughts on that out of those numbers? Well, from what I hear in the press, uh, according to the statistics of the Immigration Refugee Board, about uh, 10% of them uh, that have been uh, processed uh, have been approved, which is uh, more or less uh, what we expected, uh, people in the sort of refugee business. Uh, you know, uh, I think uh, people don't really understand the difference between somebody who's in a difficult situation and somebody who's a refugee. Uh, because there's a very specific definition, and the people who came from Haiti are mostly people who are running away from a natural disaster from the earthquake that took place in 2010. Uh, But the Refugee Protection uh, Convention does not cover those people. Those are not people who are given refugee protection normally. So difference between refugee and asylum seeker? Well, a refugee uh, by the 1951 convention is somebody who's afraid to go back to their country because of their race or their religion or their nationality. They might be a member of a particular social group. They may, you know, uh, be gay, part of a, tri- uh, a tribe or a, a small group that is being uh, persecuted, or if they've expressed a political opinion that is, uh, that is not uh, very well appreciated over there. Those are the five grounds that we accept refugees. There is no ground for people who are escaping natural disaster. Uh, should there be? 
Well, I mean, you could, but then you would probably get a lot of countries unsigning the agreement because mm. it could be overwhelming. You can imagine somewhere where there's a natural disaster, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people would be eligible. Uh, so that's the threshold that they agreed to in 1951, and if you try to play with that, it's, it's unlikely that it's going to survive in its uh, current form and with its uh, current acceptance rate. Uh, Haitians among some of the 17,000 asylum seekers who have walked across the border uh, so far this year. Other countries, 46% of Nigerian claims are accepted, 94% of Turkish, uh, 88% of Syrians approved. Obviously, there's the difference between asylum seekers and refugees. That's right. It's, it's kind of interesting that 94% of, of Turkish people are approved and only 88% of Syrians. I think. How do you explain uh, that? I can't. It's very difficult to to explain. You would think that the Syrians would be number one, mm-hmm. uh, but for some reason the Immigration Refugee Board, uh, you know, uh, when you look at all the numbers at the end, that's what they came up with. But it's hard to explain. It's also hard to explain the, those kinds of numbers. Typically, across the board over the last 20, 30 years, uh, the board has been accepting at a regular rate of around 40%, 45% in that range, maybe 50%. Uh, so seeing any one country, especially Turkey at 94 percent, is uh, you know is, is really uh, um, is really unusual. Maybe it's just a very small sample of individuals, but I think if you ran those numbers over a, lo- a larger group, it would it would come down considerably. Uh, we are expecting uh, more Haitian asylum seekers coming in the next year. Or so I guess it is it January 20, 2019. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, I think it's July. July, sorry, right. July, July 2019. That uh, they have till. Uh, what does that mean for the next wave of of uh, Haitians that are coming in? What will that mean for them if they are uh, exiting the United States? Well, I think that the take up in Canada is going to be much higher than the six thousand that we're talking about now, because the six thousand that came now. Um, we're sort of thinking, you know what? There's a chance that it'll be canceled. There's a chance that it won't be canceled. But what the, what, what the Trump administration is saying now is, look, we're going to give you a year and a half to get your affairs in order. And in a year and a half, you're going home. You've got until July 2019 to figure it out. So that's a hard deadline, in my opinion. And I think that that's how the Haitian community is going to look at that. The, 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 the rumblings of the last year or so were not convincing, but this is going to be very convincing. So as July 2019 comes, a much higher percentage of Haitians are going to be heading uh, towards the border. Um, but to be honest with you, I'm not really looking at that stream. What I'm thinking about right now is the, are the folks from El Salvador. There's about 200,000 of those in the United States right now, and they're coming due in about four or five months, in March uh, 2018. And they're four times the size uh, of the Haitians in terms of a population under TPS. So you said get your affairs in order. What does that mean? What options would they have? Look, can they apply? Uh, can, can they be? And let me ask you this question, uh, Giddy: If they came over here after the earthquake, however many years ago, 2010, I believe it was, um, uh, do, would they have been better off to apply for citizenship right away? I mean, is that the answer? You apply for citizenship, you get your affairs in order before this happens. Well, that's or, or do I they think. have that option? Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. Getting your affairs in order. Uh, the this program is uh, a, a temporary protection. You had a problem, so we're going to give you temporary protection. That means you've got to go home. Now, let's suppose somebody were to get married, or somebody were to have uh, you know some other responsible relative. That's a different story. But none of them are being queued up for permanent residence. That's not what this is about. This is about giving you temporary shelter until things quiet down in your country and you can go back. That's the whole point. So the problem now is if people are thinking, look, uh, we're not going to go, those who've given temporary shelter in the future are going to say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be doing this anymore. Maybe, you know, uh, this is not a good business because they're coming in and they, they don't go home. And that bodes very well for, for both Haitians and people from other countries who may face difficulties in the future. And, you know, and that was my next question, Giddy, is that is it silly to even offer these things? Is it naive to expect that they would leave Haiti versus the United States? You know, uh, I'd like to think at the end of the day we're all good people. We want to help our neighbors. Sure. But I, but I think at the end of the day everybody has their limits. And they're saying, look, I'm willing to let you sleep on the sofa for a while because I know that you've got a problem, but I don't expect you to live on my sofa for the rest of your life. Hmm. And so that is really what the problem is. If the, the United States gets the idea that this TPS program 
is going to cause problems, they're just going to cancel it or they're going to use it in a very, very, very limited in a very limited way, and in only exceptional situations. I do think the Americans are regretting that they ever offered TPS in the first place. Uh, but U.S. citizenship for them is not an option? Probably not, because... Um, uh, why you know, why they could they have, not just apply like everybody else, well, they, they, as they an could, asylum seeker? Well, not an asylum seeker. They, won't, they, they probably don't qualify. Right, they, they wouldn't, they, yeah. That's right, because mm -hmm. they just don't qualify. They, they're not being traced because of their race or religion or nationality or their political opinion or their membership in a particular social group. They're running away because their homes have been demolished by a natural uh, disaster, mm -hmm. and that's not a convention refugee. So, uh, you know, the United States has said, look, you can come here, stay here for a while until things get straightened out, and then go back. That's the deal. And so uh, it's, uh, you know, if they qualify through some other method, if they're investors, which is unlikely, if they're marrying uh, a, a U.S. citizen, which is possible, or if they have some other eligibility um, uh, for another program, that's fine. But under this program, this does not lead to permanent residence or citizenship in any way, shape, or form. What about if these people were to have kids once they're here? What happens with them versus their kids? Well, the, the, the kids that are born in the United States are going to be U.S. citizens. Yeah. So they can stay behind. But obviously, if you've got young children who are presumably less than seven years because the earthquake was in 2010, right. uh, you're unlikely to leave them behind. You're probably going to take them with you. But if you want to leave them with a friend or a neighbor or something like that, that's entirely up to you. But you cannot, the United States cannot deport a U.S. citizen. Uh, regarding the 298 Haitian applications that have been processed so far, 68 were abandoned by the asylum seeker, which means they didn't turn up for their hearings. Uh, 62 withdrew their applications. What happens to those people at that point? What happens, it, well, if you withdraw your application, I get, well, what happens to them if you withdraw your application? Well, you're, then going, you're, you're going home. Yeah, you're basically going home because you don't, unless you have, again, some other basis to right. remain in Canada, you married a Canadian citizen or something like that. You know, I, I saw an interesting quote uh, in the media about a lawyer who said, well, a lot of them didn't show up for their hearings because they didn't really understand how important it was exactly. to show up for their hearings. Well, well that's silly. Uh, that's really silly because most of them know going into their hearing because they've sat down with their lawyer they, and, and the lawyer asked them, are you being persecuted because of your race or your religion or your national, nationality, etc.? And they, they were not. And it's very hard to prove that, that claim. So even the 10% acceptance rate, to me, sounds a little bit high, to, to be perfectly honest. But those people know that if they go to their hearing, they're going to get a refusal, and that's going to lead to, um, to removal. Mm -hmm. So why bother? Just go underground, get a job somewhere. No one will know that you're here, and no one will send you a letter asking you to leave. And that's what's probably going to happen to the vast majority of those 6,000. They're just simply going to go underground because they're not going to be able to find a way to stay here legally. What sort of issue does that create for the country? Well, that means our population of illegals go up. That means our CBSA has more work to track all these people uh, and find them, and we then have to bear the cost of removal. That's, that's what happens in, with, every, with every group and in every situation where a person comes and they remain without, uh, without proper status. Uh, many will blame the Prime Minister for standing up and opening arms in the wake of what Trump was saying um, as just politics with actually not crossing the T's or dotting the I's or telling everybody what this was all about. Can we blame that? Uh, uh, I think so. I think, look, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to see Canada support a legitimate refugee um, claimants. Keeping the border open at the, you know, at the hole in the fence is beyond my comprehension. I don't understand why they just don't close the border. There's nothing in the law that prevents them from just simply erecting a fence and preventing people from coming across. But for some reason, uh, the government, you know, uh, may have thought that popularity is more important. They don't want to see us building walls, sort of like the Americans were talking about. So we just let them in, and now you know we're going to have to deal with it because there is a there is a tax burden to now be shared uh, because of this policy. And if we don't do something about it in terms of uh, you know an orderly immigration system, uh, there's simply going to be more coming in. And as long as people are being accepted, uh, that simply draws more people to Canada. That's a pull factor. Uh, if you believe that you're going to be able to establish yourself successfully in North America, 
you're going to be drawn to the Canadian border. So where is this going, Giddy? I mean, how do you stop this? You know, they put out these different scenarios. They send people down there uh, in the United States to to discourage this sort of thing, and that stops it for a while. But now, of course, we hear of other waves coming in. Can we just keep pretending like we're going to keep processing these people? Or, again, we have laws, we have borders. What's wrong with just doing it legally? Do we have to be accepting these people? And again, you know, it sounds it sounds harsh and it sounds terrible that we're doing this, but it's certainly not fair to the people you represent who are standing in line and doing it legally. Uh, that's right. Look, you know, I don't blame anybody. I'm a father and I'm a I'm a I'm a husband. I don't blame anybody uh, doing just about anything uh, to try to advance the interests of their children and their their spouses. I I get it. And I understand that there's, there's people who are in dire situations. We as a country have to de- simply decide how many people do we want and can afford to help. And then we go about selecting those people who are most, are most deserving. Uh, we're dealing with Haitians who are not being persecuted generally. We're about to be dealing with the El Salvadorans. There are people around the world who are in true dire circumstances. They are populating every refugee camp around the globe. They are people who are in the middle of civil wars, civil strife, uh, victims of terrorism. We have to decide if what we're going to do is use proximity as our guide. In other words, the fellow who can cross the border, come down this road and just cross over the ditch, if he's going to get priority over some person who's being you know, uh, who's being tortured in a country, who's, who's in the middle of a war, who, you know, you have the, the you know, in uh, Myanmar, you have the Muslims who are now, you know, uh, fleeing for their, for their lives at this very moment. Those, those are the kinds of decisions. But if the government, if the government is going to run the refugee program on the basis of popularity, uh, we are not going to be doing a great service uh, to the international refugee community. And at the end of the day, we're going to have a bill that we have to pay for people who uh, may not have been the most deserving. So, you know, uh, at, at the end of the day, the government has to turn around and say, look, we've always had secure borders. We are going to re-secure our borders, and we are going, wherever there's a hole, we just plug the fence, and we're going to force them to go through regular ports of entry, and that's the way it should be. Why are we not having this, this discussion, and what's the tipping point, the breaking point, where we have no choice but to have the discussion? It's it's a political decision. I mean, the government has has you know when when Justin Trudeau sent out that little tweet, he thought it was harmless. He thought that by welcome you know by stating to the world we are a welcoming country, he didn't understand because he's not in my industry. That is going to be used to leverage all kinds of advertisements from all kinds of people, both scrupulous and unscrupulous people, mm. honest and dishonest people, lawyers, smugglers. Uh, you know, taxi drivers, and say, hey, there's a business here. That door is open. So the message has to be sent out loud and clear. And I doubt that Justin Trudeau is going to turn around and say, hey, I was wrong. We are not going to accept your claims. We're not going to let you go through the fence. We're going to build the fences as high as we need to make them. I don't think he has that in him. And that's the message that the community uh, has to hear. Because, you know, if I can't feed my family in the United States, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to try to get into Canada. And you have to understand that right now you and I are talking about tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. You have to understand that our neighbor has a country within a country, about 12 million people who have no status. And if they start shaking the trees and these people start to feel like they have to move, you have to decide how many of those people you will tolerate crossing into your, uh, into your territory. Is and it the Prime Minister that needs to deliver this message? Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's no question about it. You know, you have these people running around right now, running to communities in the United States and saying, oh, don't go to Canada because you're not guaranteed uh, that you're going to win. Of course we're not guaranteed. But here we know, come July 2019, if, if you believe my version of the, the events, that's a hard deadline. That means on July 19th, I could be facing removal to Haiti where I don't want to go. So if I have zero chance of staying here in the States and I have 10% chance of going to Canada and staying there, well, what do I have to lose? There's, there's, there's obviously no risk. You just simply spend the money on a bus ticket and off you go. And it's like Las Vegas. You know, there's, there's a percentage that I'm going to win, and I'll be able to stay here in this country and bring my family and live here and, and, you know, enjoy all the benefits of being a Canadian citizen or permanent resident. People 
don't seem to understand, and that's including our Prime Minister, that that is a tremendous pull factor. And, and, and what that was, that tweet was interpreted uh, very differently than I think he, he expected. Uh, U.S. opened its doors, obviously, though, tempor- temporarily to earthquake victims. What did the Canadian government do? Did we do the same sort of thing? Well, we, we certainly uh, didn't have a refugee program for them. I, I, I think that we allowed some people to stay who were already here. Um, but I don't think that, uh, that we certainly didn't have the program that the United States had. So why and, are we making the U.S. look like they're big and bad guys when well, we didn't even help at all? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's actually kind of interesting because the whole, the whole discussion is kind of interesting. You know, uh, when, when I've, been, I've been watching the situation in the States very carefully, and there's tremendous criticism about uh, the, the Trump administration deporting uh, people uh, from, uh, from the United States with children, etc., that's my bread and butter. We see people getting deported from Canada with their children every single day. And it's just like waking up, for more, you know, waking up in the morning and having toast. It's as normal as that. Mm. And all of a sudden in the United States, because of the polarization of the political debate, uh, people are looking for anything to grab onto, not realizing that this is just, this is just a, a, a form of reality. When you are a rich country... People from poor countries want to live in your country, and they will do whatever they have to do to get there. And either A, you allow it to happen without any control, or you try to deter that. There is no country on this planet which allows people to come in and just simply stay forever. And, and, and therefore, that's why every country has rules for removal. Uh, right now, it's become the most politicized debate, but that's the way it is. Why aren't Canadians asking themselves, or aren't Canadians asking themselves, why we didn't open our borders our, uh, earlier when the U.S. did it and was much more generous than we are? Now we're labeling them as bad guys for pulling the plug on this and now trying to make as if we're going to accept all these people when we turned them away. I didn't say turned them away, but didn't accept them back in 2010. That's right. Uh, and that's and and also you're 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 looking at the uh, the DACA as well. That you can say the same thing about the DACA program. The DACA program was designed in the United States to assist kids who were brought to the United States and who remain there illegally because th- their parents brought them there. They didn't pick to go to the United States and stay there illegally. And they 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 wake up one day and they realize, oh, I'm here in this country illegally. So the United States created the DACA program so that these kids could surface. They could go to school, they could have some identification documents, they can get a job, and they can pursue their careers. We never did that here. Never. I, I can only pray that we would announce a program. We are so behind the United States in that, uh, in that, uh, in that, uh, in, 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 on that issue. It's not even funny. And the Americans are now getting all kinds of criticism for even thinking of canceling the DACA program. Hmm. So, you know, I, I don't think in many ways Canada has been anywhere as close to generous, as generous uh, as the United States has been with respect to illegals. But now it's a different day. I think Donald Trump is going to try to um, uh, sort of uh, rein that back and start to, to uh, you know, to try to bring uh, order to the situation. I just don't know how you can possibly deal with, you know, 10 or 12 million people. What I do know is that he's not deporting 10 or 12 million people. There's going to have to be some that are going to be allowed to stay, and the rest, uh, the rest are going to have to go. Immigration lawyer Giddy Maman has been with us, senior partner and founder of Maman Sandaluk Kingwell LLP. Giddy, as always, thanks for the ta- uh, time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.